Hey guys, this is Colin from Blackjack Apprenticeship, and I'm joined with Joe748 and Loud and Often. How are you guys doing today? Doing all right. Doing well. Ready to talk books. Yeah, we're going to talk about our new project, Tales from the Felt, which is a card cutting coffee table book that is made for charity. We got 21 true stories from 21 blackjack professionals, including Richard Munchkin, Tommy Hyland, Max Rubin, Josh Axelrad, Nathaniel Tilton, and a whole bunch more people. But we wanted to talk a bit about it. And actually, it's going to be Joe 748 interviewing us about the process. So this meant zero prep for me, which is nice. So I'll I'll hand it over to you, Joe. All right. First off, I want to say um, the cover was not my call that they used my illustration oh. for the cover. Yeah, I pushed for that. I pushed for your story. I mean, it's it's the most, I think, iconic illustration as far as the, the setting. And, and so I was like, no, Joe, I know you don't want to be on the cover, but that's what we have to use. I hope that people make you do that pose so they can take a selfie with you all the time. Okay, so we're, um, yeah, how did this idea evolve from the very, very beginning? How has it changed since the start? Well, if my memory is correct, I was thinking, I don't know, probably like three years ago, I started thinking about, it would be really cool to have something when people have been members of Blackjack Apprenticeship for a certain number of years. I don't know where where the idea came from. I, I'm friends with other people that run internet businesses. Maybe one of them are like, oh yeah, well, you know, I send people a gift at, at this point. I was like, oh, that's a cool idea. And then I started thinking, well, what would be a cool thing if someone's been a member for, say, five years? So it, it started with, I think that merged with the idea of whenever I talk to any of my AP friends, they everybody's got great stories. And not everybody has like a book's worth of stories or is going to you know sit down and write a book. But you hear one of these stories and it's like, oh, come on, you know, the world needs to hear this story. And so some, somehow those ideas merged and... You know, I think early on it was the thought of of a card can coffee table book. That's what I kept pitching to you guys, like, oh, let's make a card can coffee table book. And that's that's how it developed. And really, you two are the reason it went from me like thinking about this for three years to us actually making it. You know, a story is a big part of what we do. The stories are always amazing. And a lot of we what APs do is behind the scenes or by themselves. And so story is a big way that we kind of are able to get information, connect, communicate. And the stories are also wild because we're at odds with these mega corporations on a daily basis. So story is so foundational that it's fun to find a way to get those stories to people for once. Yeah, so you said uh, you wanted a coffee table format. What, What was the choice for that? Yeah, it's just something really visually enjoyable to look at. I don't really remember. It was just I had this picture in my head of, you know, a bunch of these. When I hear a story, it, it could be as small as one of the stories. It was a text message I got. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that that would be a great short story. But then that merged with something fun to look at, something that you would want to have sitting out and people would keep sitting out. And at any moment, someone's over at your house, they would thumb through it and be like, whoa, what is this? Or, you know, just read a story or, or read the whole book and enjoy it. Nice. So at the beginning, David, you you got brought onto the team pretty early. What was the uh, the 21 authors? Was that at, from the very start, that choice to have that many authors? Or You know, it just is a right number <laughs> for, for what we're doing. Like Colin said, one person's story is a book. We see plenty of those. 
but it's cool to have like a bunch, you know, like more than a handful of people almost feels like being on a big blackjack team. And it also, with that many authors, you're bound to get stories from all sides of the game and sort of all sorts of experiences. You know, some are going to be coming from, you know, a little bit of a darker place or some have these stories of huge triumphs. And with one, two, or even five or 10, you might not get as much range as you do with 21. So I just, I just felt like it was the right number. Yeah, that's a lot. I mean, um, one thing that was really cool when I read it for the first time was I could, and I, I knew I've met most of these people. Some I haven't met, but you can clearly see everyone's unique voice in each of the story. And it is so distinct how differently everyone tells their story, but also even how they talk in their story, like the dialogue and everything. What was your um, role, David, as like uh, editing wise? So I've spent many years as an AP and I've spent many years as an editor. So as an AP, usually the stories we all tell are just sort of the wildest and craziest. You know, it's almost like people trying to outdo each other at a at a party with their wild stories because we have lots of wild stories. And so we end up telling all the wild stories. But as an editor, what I really like is when you you do hear people as individuals and you do get sort of all ranges of the emotional spectrum and sort of coming from all kinds of different places so, so that you do get the sort of whole experience that is life, you know, some, some sadness, some triumph, and just sort of how all of that works together. So I really did, was hoping for, I wasn't sure it would happen, but I was hoping that we would have different voices and experiences, especially a lot of people who are good APs and who tell wild stories. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are able to sit down and write their story because that's a different skill set. So I was really actually impressed with the level of talent we got in the writing department. And it made my job easy because the voices were very identifiable and their mood and their tone and the descriptions and all this stuff. People did a great job of capturing their stories. And then I just was sort of editing to strengthen their voice as opposed to try and make it flat or like the other voices. I really liked some people had different writing styles. Some people use big words. Some people tell it really simply and straightforward. And I just really love all that variation. So it feels like a room full of of different voices, faces, and friends, as opposed to us being sort of like all robotic machines who go out and beat the casinos. Yeah. And when people get interested in card counting, it's all about, you know, the big wins, the big losses. And, you know, there's some of that in there. There's stories with six-figure scores. But, you know, this is really, hopefully people that aren't card counters will enjoy it. I'm sure they will. But this is made for card counters. And when you're a card counter, there's everything else. There's, you know, just the funny interactions at a table, you know, like, I'm thinking of uh, Hit a Seven story of it's not even at the table; it's like at the deli. And for mine, like I intentionally chose to tell a story of like one of those everything goes wrong nights because every card counter I know has one of those. You know, of course, everybody has. Oh yeah, this was my biggest win, but we could probably as vividly remember our worst night in a casino as well as our best. And and you know, where do those stories get told? Every card counter can relate to it. But those stories often aren't told. And, and I agree with David, like we, we've got a wide range of experiences in there. 
You know, you said too that it's a book for card counters, but I I know that before I was ever a card counter, I would have loved to see something like this because when I read something like Bringing Down the House or see a movie like 21 or even something that's more accurate to the day-to-day experience, it's still sort of one vein of thinking and you never can quite trust one line of thinking. Whereas to get the perspective of 21 different people, you start to get a feel for like the nature of the beast. Uh, And I'm always interested in that. Like I want to get all sides of a topic and hear the people who are, you know, pro or, you know, on different sides of an issue. So I just love the the well-roundedness. I want to go back a little bit, David, you, what's the process do you just like kind of scan the story and try to hear those distinct ways people talk or their voice? Like, how do you replicate that throughout the story if it if it needs a little bit of boost or emphasis? Right. Well, I think the first the first read through is does this have a beginning, middle, and an end? If it's just a beautiful poem, that doesn't help. Once it has like an identifiable, usually you know these are first person stories. So once it has an identifiable character, is there something that they are? A situation that they're in, you know, like they're the basic setup for most card counting stories is I was there trying to win money. So a lot of stories are are like that, but some sort of story movement, you know, like they're faced with a problem or a situation comes up is once there's a character or a person or a narrator, and then they they have some sort of like crisis or situation before them, that's where you start to hear their voice and character in the moment, right? So some people meet a moment with like, I was really angry. And then other people meet a moment with like, I was really worried about what's going to happen. And you just get the little sort of like fingerprint of that person, the way they play the game, who they are, how they meet a crisis. And so those, just the, the word choices that they make, it starts to color and bring out who they are. And once I see even in in one good sentence out of the story, and I can see like, ah, here's where you really sort of are able to to like look in the mirror and see yourself or show us who you are, then I can, you know, make sure that's happening at the beginning of the story, at the end of the story, and sort of all points in between, and just sort of very lightly sort of, you know, shape those word choices so they're happening. So you do have a beginning, middle, and end, and that you are yourself throughout. And that's exciting. So we get all the, you start getting all the submissions from authors for all these different stories. Where do you guys go from there? How do you pick and choose which ones make it, which ones are maybe saved for volume two, possibly? How'd you go about that process? Yeah, well, the first goal was, can we find 21 people who are willing to submit stories? And as an editor, if you get 21 stories on your doorstep, chances are like half of them aren't close or worth publishing or, you know what I mean? So it's, that's a big, so I was hoping for, you know, 30 or 40 submissions, but as it turned out, we got maybe 25 or 26 submissions but as it turned out, everybody's was really strong. And there was definitely a seed of good storytelling in, in every story that came in, actually. And some of it was just timing. Some people, their, the stories came in too late. We'd already done illustrations. And there was, you know, we really want to get this book out in time for Christmas as a self you know, created deadline, but also thought it, it made sense. And so if a story came in, too late that we couldn't rework it. it it would have just changed our entire timeline yeah i don't want to speak too soon but it, i don't think i've seen anything 
I mean, it's a grand statement. I don't think I've seen anything like this book anywhere as far as a illustrated anthology that is short story and adult. I've seen, you know, anthologies, children's books that are illustrated, things like that. But I don't think, I mean, I, I scoured the largest bookstore in the country and I didn't see anything similar to that. I mean, have you seen anything like this? I haven't. I mean, already books that are related to AP World and card counting are very few and far between and generally are either one person's story or at sort of an instructional, like how to beat the game and that kind of thing. So already just having a collection of stories is unique and having a collection of stories that sort of runs these different channels and feelings and stuff. That's, I think, a a separate strength. And then the fact that it's illustrated is wild to me. So I I think on several different levels, it's already pretty dang unique. You put those together and I I can't compare anything to it. How did you guys go about finding a publisher for this? What was that whole process like? I mean, pitching an illustrated anthology of 21 authors about a very niche career. Well, yeah, I mean... There, there are multiple reasons we decided to self-publish, but definitely so that we could control the timeline, we could control the costs, we could control the the product, but also like like a publisher has to it's it's an investment you know that they plan on getting a good return for you know this if it's not for profit then you know we don't have to also make sure the publisher is is making money so. For those reasons, we decided, hey, let's let's do it ourselves. I think there's also just that entrepreneurial, hey, let's figure this out. It sounded fun and exciting, and and it, you know, all those headaches are part of the adventure. So yeah, we decided just to do it ourselves. What was the biggest surprise for either of you two about the process of making this book? What was the thing that kind of took you back the most? For me, it was that the whole plan from the very beginning was to do Amazon print on demand because there's no costs to production you know yeah you get a a smaller cut of the proceeds but you're not having to buy inventory and we researched there's there's another option which it would have been buying inventory but it still would have been pretty affordable but then when we like we were already at the finish line and we'd even bought a copy of someone else's printed what do you call graphic novel to see the quality but when we got the proof from amazon it was like, this is not the quality we were expecting. You know, it, it was this mix of disappointment and panic, like disappointment. Like we've had had this vision for me for, for like three years of creating this thing. And then we'd been working really hard on it, the three of us for six months. And then it showed up. It was like, oh, the, the cover doesn't look that great. The pages don't look very good. It feels kind of cheap. Um, there were things like that printed wrong or the book was already looking worn, even though it was brand new. So, and then the panic of like, what are we going to do? And so um, this is only three weeks ago, something like that, that we'd already announced it, that it was coming out. We hadn't opened up pre-sales, but we'd announced that the book was, was coming. And then I, I had to look around and I found a like local publisher and it's, it was almost twice as expensive Her book but it's going to be the product that we want it to be, which means we'll be proud of it. We'll be excited about it. People will enjoy holding it and feeling it and having it on their coffee table more. And also it means we can, you know, 
charge a little bit more because it's a nice product rather than being like, oh, this thing sucks so much. We have to sell it for really cheap. And then it's just this cheap, you know, I just, it's my personality. I don't like cheap, crappy things that wear out real fast. I'd rather pay a little more for something that's quality. We admittedly, we kind of set the bar high because coffee table book is generally in the bookstore. That is the highest quality book that they are selling. Um, And often coffee table books are like one or two hundred dollars because of all the work that goes into making them something that you pick up at and looks beautiful and is presentable to anybody who comes through your house. And also because I think we are we're doing something that this is sort of a collector's item kind of quality. So we we already set the bar really high when we were going into the project, for sure. I was going to say, you know, as far as surprises, mine was actually a good surprise, which is, you know, as a writer and editor, I'm familiar with the publishing industry, and it is not an easy industry to get on board with, to work with, to see your product from the beginning to the end, come out and be happy with it. I think every author I know has gone with sort of like tunnel vision of like, oh, what what it's going to look like the day I publish a book. And then when that day comes, it's like, oh, I had no idea how impossible or how much hard work or, you know, and just like it didn't meet their level of expectation. And so I think going into this, I'm I'm always sort of hopeful and optimistic and like, yeah, let's do this. I, I'm glad we have a team and we're like, let's go. But at the same time, I, I knew like, oh man, they're, they're probably not only all the hurdles I know of, but all probably a lot of hurdles that I don't even know of yet that are going to come along. So the fact that we started six months ago and by Christmas have a book out that looks beautiful and it sort of accomplishes everything we had wanted is really exciting. So it was more of an exciting surprise. How do you think this book would have turned out differently if it was in the hands of another company? Well, first in the pitching phase, I think everybody would have said no, because we've chosen a particular audience and publishers already are looking at their bottom line. They don't want to put out things that aren't going to make them money. So I think they would have looked at our target audience and said, oh, no, we, we need we need to grow your target audience. How can you make this more for like grandmas and, you know, students and all these other categories that they're selling books to? But then assuming you find a publisher, then you're talking about a two-year window of like, you know, collecting submissions, figuring out who you're editors are figuring out who your illustration stuff is and you've got a lot more people the beast is you know hundreds of people all along the way all the freelancers all the people working at the publishing company everybody else and so there's this huge long timeline which drives the price way up so you're never really going to make a penny you authors make money on this sort of what the publisher fronts and the publisher usually doesn't make that back. So, you know, authors kind of end up getting left high and dry or they publish a book for no money on the hope that it will sell. And then publishers don't do at this point, any marketing in the same way that they used to. They, they really lean heavily on authors to have platforms and do their own marketing. So it's just a big industry where their margins are so narrow that there are many reasons for them to say no all along the way. And there are many reasons for them to 
sort of sublimate your choice and style ideas all along the way. So it would never have been, I don't think it would have ever have been made by a publisher, which is why I think we were smart to just go our own way. I did talk to Anthony Curse about the book. Um, you know, I asked if he would write a story and, and he he wanted to. He didn't have time with our our timeline. But, you know, the reason we didn't even try to do that was part of it was like, this might not be a project that makes it, like I said, a publisher has to, it has to be a good investment. And, you know, I think we'll get to the point where it was worth doing, but it's not like, it's a, it's a unique thing that we made that, a lot of publishers would probably say, yeah, not, I mean, I would think most publishers would say, no, not, not interested. And and then what the end result would have to be, you know, they'd say, well, we need all the crazy stories and we're trying to have the interesting stories. So any, anyway. Yeah. It sounds similar to the, you know, film industry right now, where it's like, they're only choosing the reboots, only choosing the, the Marvels and the, this and that to pour a lot of money into and to promote and to really focus on because they know it's going to make money and all the, the indie gems are like not being surfaced as, as much. Yeah. So what's, what's next? Like if you were to do this again, what would you guys do differently? I mean, a little bit more time, give ourselves a little bit more time. I couldn't be happier with, with the stories we got, like, uh, you know, if I forget to say it later, I just want to say a huge shout out to everybody that that submitted a story, you know, from Richard Munchkin. When I first told him the idea, or I, I pitched the idea, he he said, I think it's a great idea and I'll do whatever I can to help. Like, I, I was, you know, floored by that. Tommy Hyland was like, yeah, I'll, I'll write a story. And it was great. And you know that, that uh, Max Rubin wrote a story on a tight timeline, going through some health issues. Um, all the way to, you know, some of my favorite authors, you know, blackjack authors and and friends. So couldn't be happier with the stories, but I give us more time. And, you know, I, I think that we now know some of the things that cost the most and could research it earlier. And, you know, right now with there's still issues with COVID and and timelines for products. So like getting it manufactured overseas, it could put it off six months. Some those are the things that I'm thinking of it's also tough like to be honest it's tough like because it's not for profit even doing this podcast like this could be a podcast promoting blackjack apprenticeship and memberships and things that make us money and it's hard to to like put aside time and and resources for something that's not for profit I think it's worth it but I think trying to think through how to streamline that stuff is what I think about from from the you know I guess publisher side what what do you think David I think, you know, the only the only things I would do differently would be based on what we accomplished. It would be fun to sort of now that we've seen what one illustrator's take is on on these stories in our game, it'd be fun to see what different illustrators takes would be. It would be fun to create a sort of arc or narrative that's a little more thought out. We were just sort of okay, here's our 21 stories. Now, how do we arrange them? Is this still, do we have an origin story here? Okay, we do, luckily. Do we have a big win story? Okay, check that box. Do we have an interaction with, you know, we need, we need, we wanted to sort of be able to, to paint 
sort of all sides of the card counter and AP experience. And we got really lucky doing that. It would be fun to sort of more decidedly do that, you know, have more time, more sort of creative energy around the planning of how this is going to come out. We just got really lucky at every step. It would also be fun now that we've done this and proven whatever we have proved by doing this to pull somebody in who has maybe a little bit of publishing or marketing know-how and could say, okay, you know, you did great, but we could level up a little in some way, you know, that would be fun. Yeah. Something I noticed during the making of this book, David, was how much thought was put into the order of the stories that are in the book that I didn't really think of ahead of time because I've never been a part of this process, but like, yeah, you guys really put a lot of time into figuring out the flow of the of the stories and how it's gonna like how do you pick and choose which which ones to place first second third and 21st yeah i mean it's just like writing any story or putting together any movie you want people to enter with a blank a fresh slate they don't know you know a reader picks up a book and turns to page one and they're just they're a blank slate so you don't want to start them off with like the heaviest saddest weirdest story you want to you want to give them a fresh intro like you know the door is opening do you want to walk through it kind of a feeling for your first story or two you want an origin story early on for those people who are like wow i didn't know what it's like to stumble upon this career it's cool to hear a story of somebody who stumbled upon this career and how that happened and now that you're sort of accustomed to what the beginning of a card counter's career might look like then actually some stories at the tables and sort of picking up steam, picking up energy, maybe going into some weirder or darker places now that we've established sort of the the footsteps of a, a card counter from beginning to hitting the tables to the big wins and losses, and then into whatever else, which is, you know, interactions with security and police or, you know, struggling with family and where they fit into my card counting career and, and sort of all these offshoots. And then, you know, you want to, you kind of, at the by the end of a book, you want to kind of come back to a center or a finish or a, you know, we're still in process, but now that we've seen all these stories, we feel good about where, where, what this collection is as a whole. So let's talk some tales from the felt here. David, you you have a bunch of stories to choose from. What um, can you tell us a little bit about the one you included in the book? Maybe a little background or some extra details that that aren't in the book about that story. Yeah. So you know, because I was both editor and contributor, I was able to sort of gauge what kinds of stories were coming in and what we needed. But in the end, my story is more in the the middle range of the book. So it's it's more of like sort of the the thrill of the getaway a little bit. I was at a casino, it was a riverboat casino, and I had won. And as I was exiting, I noticed over my shoulder three people following me, which brings up a whole, you know, other topic that APs deal with, which is, you know, money protection. And when you're one person against a, the casino, and B, anybody who's seen you win money, you you really have to be on your guard at all times. So this was a moment where I saw people sort of increasing their their pace following me after I had had a big win. So and they were just dressed in in street clothes. And so I'm sort of walking faster and they're sort of walking faster. And we're there's only one way to exit the casino because it's a riverboat. So there's this is one sort of carpeted 
archway with no exit doors or anything like you just you're just going in one direction and so i really could only continue towards the parking garage and so it was just sort of this situation that escalated i won't give away who these people turned out to be but they were fully chasing me and push came to shove and there's a surprise twist and then even beyond that there's a sort of a, a surprise ending but it was it was an exciting story and so it was fun to tell an exciting story if the stories that we had gotten were sort of more along those lines and plenty of excitement. Then I would have gone into the bank and tried to find something that was more heartfelt or sort of a moment. But as it turned out, this was just sort of a, a wild and crazy moment that happened to me. And so I was able to tell it. David Loudenofton also gave another story. He, he donated a second story because we created a like a bunch of bonus stuff for people that want, you know, what we're calling deluxe. Really, it's just a way to get a little bit more for for the charity. But we we have three extra stories, two of them that didn't didn't make the cut. Uh, one by Stephen Bridges, one by Levi Mitch. But Loudon often gave us another story that's one of my favorite of, of his stories uh, about a, a college frat boy interaction at the table that makes me laugh every time I read it. But anyway, uh, so he's got two stories in there, but he was very willing to say, I'll use one of my stories to fill in the gaps. And it was a good fit. Yeah. Colin, what about you? What about your story? You, you've already written a book, so. I've already written a book and I put all the exciting, you know, whatever. I put a lot of stories in my book, but uh, I think from the beginning when it's like, Hey, we get to tell the stories that often don't get told, but every, every AP can relate to. And there was a funny thing running the church team. What do we have? Like 30 people go through the team over five years. And there would be this thing where someone be like, Hey, how was, how was Vegas? And they're like, well, I was sick the first night. And it, I mean, over and over and over. So I'll be like, yeah, I ended up getting food poisoning to where it became almost a joke. Like, oh yeah, food poisoning again. But every API know has has one of those stories of just like getting getting really sick. And so, oh, you know, Joanna, who who wrote my favorite uh, story in the book, one of the story when she she threw out a bunch of story ideas. One of them was like she got sick and she puked in her purse <laughs> at the blackjack table. I kept playing. Mark Treese, who was on the church team, he had a story where he crapped his pants at the blackjack table because he had downed an entire bottle of night of Dayquil, which is like the most Mark Treese thing to do. Rather than have a dose of Dayquil, he's like, I'll feel way better if I drink the whole bottle. And he had a high count and he knew he had to get to the bathroom. He's like, well, I'm not leaving this table. So anyway, my my story, it's not that exactly, but it, it was just one of those, if you were to write a, you know, dark comedy or something where everything goes wrong, it all happened. What about you, uh, Joe for eight? What's your story and why? Yeah. So this was about a uh, special game in Europe that we went to go play. And uh, there was some parts of the story leading up to the, the stress of the, the event where it started. I mean, the trip started before we even flew out of the country where it's it was a little rocky. So we got to the airport. I think it was a uh, Newark maybe. And we're flying out. You know, I declared all the money. I brought 40 or 50,000 with me. I declared it all correctly, you know, went out of my way to find the right office that was not labeled where to go. It's just a blank door that you had to find to declare your money before you left. So then I did all that. And then uh, as we were approaching the gate to get on the plane, there was two German shepherds, DEA waiting for me there. You know, as soon as I saw the dogs, 
I knew it was like, oh, this is definitely going to be <laughs> be about uh, what's in my backpack, you know. So then they pulled me aside and and went through my all my luggage and backpack, and they, you know, confirmed and counted the money to make sure it was all there and all correct. And then everything was fine after that. But uh, yeah, it was already starting off with nerves. Yeah, and like every one of us know what that feels like. Well, at least the three of us, we've all been stopped, you know, going through the airport and the stress of like, you know, and and with the church team, we had $115,000 seized by, you know, border patrol, but like, it was a horrific nightmare. You know, it could have been a six-figure loss, not a part of EV, not a part of the game. And so we all know that that's like, I haven't even gotten to the casino and something horrible could go wrong. Yeah. So, um, I mean, as soon as we got there, once we started playing this sort of uncharted territory game that we haven't heard of anyone else playing, ended up losing the 40, all 40 grand that we bought in the first 30 minutes, 30 minutes, (laughs) somehow we were able to go from zero, you know, to negative dollars to over a hundred thousand in in three weeks. So the story talks about that. To wrap this up, we're going to do a quick run through of the 21 stories and just uh, any quick reactions we have, starting with the first one, The Dentist, The Aussie, and Craig by Richard Munchkin. Uh, origin story, so which is a, an amazing and great origin story from one of the premier APs known around the world. So that's exciting to have. And it was just a, a really wild, fun tale. He told this story at a BJ party we did back before COVID. And, you know, it, it was it was really fun to listen to. And like I said earlier, I'm like honored that that he uh, gave, gave us a story. Really cool. Next, we got Bang Boom Pow by Rich Braxma, who was a church team member. And his makes me laugh just, just uh, thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, this is like the classic sort of stumbly bumbly. I'm a card counter going into a situation and then finding yourself feeling like, well, did I get myself in over my head here? What's going on? And just sort of the hilarity that can happen behind a very real feeling threat. Yeah. A scary, like the terror uh, of a scary situation. And and then the newbie experience. Card Counting with the Congressman by Tommy Highland. This was a story I hadn't hadn't heard before. And Tommy never ceases to to impress with with his stories. And again, like super honored that that he gave us a story. Well, and this is this is like a huge historical landmark. I mean, this is this is actually his story actually shaped some of the landscape of what card counting would become going forward. So it's kind of like from the vault, like who knew, but it's really an important historical reference point. And also, like, I feel like it encapsulates, like, a lot of people's when they get bit by the card counter bug when they had no idea this was a thing or had an interest in it. And all of a sudden, they're just so obsessed with it. It's like, whoa, this thing is really cool. Like, this congressman had no idea, you know, that card counting was a thing and that also players were getting, you know, mistreated to the extent that they were back in those days, for sure. Next, we've got Open Wide and Say Oops by Grace the Gorilla Jones. (laughs) I had to... You know, suggest Grace submit a story, and she did. And and uh, on Gambling with an Edge, Richard Munchkin said it was his favorite story in the book. Yeah, yeah, and it's really important because it, it's it's one of our female APs, and it's it's a little bit outside of the perspective of somebody who's at the tables battling the casinos, and brings up the whole topic of how do you talk about this with family? How do you protect fam- family members? 
you know, what do you say in, in mixed company? Just it's it's a really fun perspective. When I got into card counting, it was my thing. She, you know, she was supportive, but she had zero interest in it. She had a job, but then these worlds collided and uh, we thought it was going to cost us a pretty penny, but um, you'll have to read the story. Her story reminds me of how small like the gambling world is and how I always think about who I'm talking to and are they going to know these people or these people. I was at a casino in the same state and the manager followed me out to the car and he was angry about me playing there because and he told me how he felt like he was you know being deceived and he was duped by me and he took it really personally and then he he started to threaten me he was like maybe i'll have some of my like my native cousins come follow you to your hotel and he like you know followed me all the way out to my car and i tried to defuse the situation anyway so i drive you know 30 minutes away to my hotel that i was staying at and i was just you know pretty freaked out and i was asking the front desk you know manager this was late at night i was like so do you guys have security you know in the parking lot here how's how secure is this place and i, I kind of told her a little bit of the story and then she was like oh that guy that guy's my uncle no way <laughs> yeah oh my gosh did you stay there i thought about leaving i i didn't leave though i stayed yeah oh my gosh yeah. Next, we've got Blunder Down Under by Max Rubin. And to me, this is one of those like the crazy stories from back in the day. I think that today's AP has has no idea some of the things that people were pulling decades ago and, uh, you know, high stakes international AP plays. Yeah. And this this is one where the voice really sort of comes alive and makes it this sort of like wild sort of like pirate adventure like they're swinging in on a vine and then battling the casinos it's it's a really fun tell next we got the pepperoni pineapple samaritan by hit a7 and this was the one that it was a text message that i saw and i was like oh my gosh like he's got to tell tell this in a thousand words uh and he didn't he didn't disappoint yeah that's sometimes these sort of anecdotes of ah this weird thing happened and it's like a sentence story it's like if you stop and look at it there's a lot going on especially with just sort of the conundrums we find ourselves in as you know ap's with a bunch of cash in public settings then we got mixed marshall and me by sd1 that's one of like the crazier interactions that i know of of uh card counter at a casino. And we that's the story. We gave that away for free. If if you want to read it on Blackjack Apprenticeship, you could read that story. But uh, let's just say a famous wealthy person was at his table and, and SD1 ended up having some crazy interactions with them. And we have a fair bit of celebrity spotting. So I was glad that a celebrity spotting story got in there. We got Backroom Breakfast by Eric Scamble. This was one I was like, really hoping she would be willing to write a story for us. And she has so much going on while we were trying to get these stories, she still got it done for us. And so thank you very, very much, Rx Gamble. And I didn't know what she was going to write. She's a gifted writer, but it, it was probably the, the scariest story in the book. Yeah. And face the toughest reality check that we can have as APs. Yeah. Basically like worst case scenario situation. Then we got Slushing the Slopes of Nope by Brad Clark. So Brad Clark, BC Kinetic, he was our original forum moderator, but he was also on the church team before that. Multiple six-figure winning card counter for for the church team. And this is one of like, this is, I think, our only crazy comp story. But he ends up spending the day with what the casino owner's son. Is that right? Yeah, the, the son of the casino owner 
he ends up spending a comp today with with him followed by the mansplainer by sassy red yeah another another female ap and especially a very female ap centric story which was much needed because that experience is unique in the casino it's it's an, it's an extra layer that some people have to deal with in coming to the tables and you know to us who you know the local gamblers local ploppies some say and dealing with them can rise to another level if you're if you're a woman ap and then emotional bankroll by Stan Podolak. Yeah. So speaking of Stan, so I got a text from Stan last night. He sent me a picture. So in, in his illustration for his story, it's sort of a landscape of the casino that he was playing at. And he had a really big score at tiny place. We didn't use the same, you know, casino that he actually played at because we didn't want to blow up his spot, of course. So we we just chose a random small casino to kind of draw an illustration of that that looks similar. So he sends me a photo and it's the actual real life casino that we drew a picture of that he just happened to be at. He must have been driving through. So he he went in there just for entertainment, I guess, because they, they don't I don't even think they have table games. But he showed them, you know, the story and the illustration and the picture. And they just thought it was the coolest thing ever to have like this professional book and have an illustration of their casino. You know, so they said they were going to buy a couple copies. Oh, that's so cool. They can buy as many copies as they want. <laughs> and then we got Dude, Where's My Car by Rymo. This is the sort of the classic, like, what have I lost or misplaced? Uh, what has the casino taken from me? Just sort of the mixed up adventure, starting with a where did I park my car? And then it gets more nefarious, like, oh, well, maybe because the casino just trespassed me, maybe they have something to do with my missing car. So that next we got The Seven Tonys by Joanna Henderson. This is, this is my favorite story in the book. We're going to do a short interview with her about her story. But it's one of, like, as I've shown it to people, they're like, did she make this up? But nope. This is the one that would get optioned for a movie. <laughs> a wild tale. Yeah, seriously. This was also the story that was one of the hardest to pick an illustration, not because it was hard to come up with something, because there are so many good visual elements in her story. We could have done four or five different drawings and they all would have competed well against each other. Next, we've got Turning Green at Redwind by myself. And I already talked about that a bit, followed by BC by Josh Axelrad. This was another, like, I was just like crossing my fingers that he would make the time to tell a story because he has great stories and he's just such a talented storyteller and he didn't disappoint. It involves a large score, but, but like, all the emotions and, and the, the struggle wrapped in it, the away from the table stuff and then the life on the road stuff all wrapped in. It's great for mood. It's like the the way you, you can feel the rain and the like sort of the, you can smell the inside of these motel rooms that he's staying in. It's just well-written, good voice. Followed by a riverboat casino is no place for a foot chase by loud and often David Drury. We already talked about that one. After that is Shutdown Breakdown by Cartwright. People who don't know Cartwright, he's been on Gambling with an Edge. He's one of the most brilliant AP minds out there, beating things that none of us could even <laughs> dream of. And this was like a, a big team play that demanded everyone at the table working together. And then hilarity ensues. <laughs> Next, we got Return to the Hideous Universe by... Dusty Wisnu, Pink Chip, he was on the church team. And this was a story he told in part on our team's like private message board way back in the day. And 
little spoiler, he spends the night in jail for stolen money. And he does a good job condensing the story in, into like how it basically was like going to change his life <laughs> when that happened. Yeah, just just another another crazy tale, sort of like from the inside of a casino ex- security experience gone wrong. Yeah, this is one of the crazier stories I've heard from an AP. Just what went down. Next is the betting heart by burning down the house. Yeah, this one I, is sort of the emotional center of the book. It's just beautiful, and it really connects to the charity that we are working to sort of help out, you know, in that he's dealing with the fact that his father was a was a problem gambler. And so how does he how does he weigh that against this career inside the casino? And it comes to play and it's sort of like it you never guess it see never see it coming sort of a way. And so it's just it's really beautiful the way that he allows sort of the heaviness and the, those those kinds of topics to play in the story. After that, we've got Mob Pastries by Joe 748, which we already touched on. And then finishing it off is Beach Reads by Nathaniel Tilton, author of The Blackjack Life. And that was also like, wow, thank you for writing a story. And it was it was a kind of the perfect end. Yeah. Well, it's like uh He's he's a published author, and so that sort of comes to play on the other on the other side of the table when the pit boss has, has apparently knows who he is or has read his book. So it's a funny story. So about the charity, says some questions about that. What's the charity specifically, and how does it how does it operate? Yeah, like I mentioned before, with these APs and how valuable their time is, how limited it is, all that stuff. I I just didn't know how I was going to get people to give us their stories. And, you know, I thought about paying them, but then the cost of the book goes up higher and higher. And and how much do you have to pay someone whose time is worth, you know, 500, a thousand bucks an hour in the casino. So I thought, what if, what if we just donate all the proceeds to charity? And that would be a good, a reason why someone would want to take the time, give us their story. And, and, and it worked. So then the question was what charity and very quickly I thought, Oh, the, the blackjack ball, they have a charity or the Blackjack Hall of Fame, I should say. They they already have a charity that helps people affected by problem gambling. And I've I've talked extensively with Max Rubin about this. You know, they they established it before COVID back in 2019, beginning of 2020, something like that. And he was so excited about it. And it got me excited about it. And I I remember back then saying, let me know if there's anything I can do to help. And so then once it was like, hey, let's do this for charity, it was a no-brainer. And so then the question was, is that okay with them? And they said, yeah, of course. And you know, that's when Richard Munchkin said, what can I do to help? And Max Rubin said, hey, I'll give a story. So you know, they partner with charities that exist. So basically funneling money towards charities that are doing research and uh, helping those most affected by problem gambling and kind of their pitch is, hey, we've all benefited so much from casinos, but we've also seen how much it can destroy lives. And so, you know, how can we give back in, in some ways? And so, yeah, that's that's what we went with. And I'm, you know, excited. To, I felt like, hey, this is a nonprofit that all of us could get behind. Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about this too as well that I want to talk about. Whereas, um, you know, as much as I hate the casinos and, you know, I hate the casinos as much as the next AP, but the reality is also it, I do feel like a little bit of a hypocrite sometimes because at the end of the day where we are profiting off of the casinos operations and the casinos are taking advantage of problem gamblers. So how do you guys 
reconcile those two things as APs, you know, it's just acknowledging the fact that we are actually benefiting from this beast of a thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to know because this isn't the reality, but I've, I've thought, Hey, if every casino went out of business, I'd be content and I would do something else. And I would be happy that they're not destroying lives, these casinos, but that's easy to say it is tough, but I, I think it's okay to hold that conflict to say, these places do exist and I exploit them. But at the same time, the devastation is real. Um, I did a video on YouTube a couple of years ago, getting into, you know, why I think casinos are evil, how they impact local communities, all that stuff. And, you know, kind of hold that tension to say, hey, they exist. And, you know, as, as long as they do, I'll exploit it. But at the same time, like, I wish they didn't exist. Yeah, I think there's something to like knowing the tension exists and honoring that while living in it. It's just a difficult reality. But if you're open to looking at that and talking about it and seeing all sides of it, you can you can sort of move towards appreciating the struggles that other people are going through and appreciating what you're doing to try and beat the casino and what that means, you know, I think you can extrapolate a lot of sort of like loose ideas of who's losing the money, who's making the money. But I think above all else, the way we carry ourselves in relationship to other people is sort of the biggest thing. So I don't know. It sounds like a longer conversation. So the cover of the book, a huge decision because it's the first thing people see, you know, it's really important. What was kind of the vibe you guys we're going for for the book cover. Well, since you're art director, you had a big yeah, yeah. say in it. But yeah, we were going for class, like classic, but also kind of, you know, we ended up adding in the uh, part of the illustration from your story to give people a feel for what was inside. We want to tell the story. There's there's actually some kind of like Easter eggs on the book cover if people look close enough. That that was kind of a fun thing to think through. How do we add these? Like tell this story just on the cover. Yeah. You know, I mean, the thought with a cover is you want to both represent what the book is, make it appealing, but it's almost like if the door is cracked, like what's inside, what, what what's going on in here? And you want it to be sort of an invitation in. So I just think that we had to choose the illustration that did best for that. And so that that's how we came to deciding the illustration is it really did feel like okay, this is clearly a book about Blackjack. It matches with the title, Tales from the Felt, and it's sort of beckoning an answer to the question, like, what's going on in this photo? What's inside this book? What sort of stories are in here? So it just sort of, it was fun to to have it all come together over a series of meetings and figuring it out. So where do we buy this book? Yeah, right now we're selling it exclusively on Blackjack Apprenticeship, and that's so that we can maximize the proceeds for the nonprofit. I don't know if we'll ever sell it anywhere anywhere else. Hey, if Anthony Chris is willing to sell it through Las Vegas Advisor, I'd be honored. Uh, probably the Gambling General Bookstore at some point. Maybe they'll want a few copies. But right now, it's just through Blackjack Apprenticeship, store.blackjackapprenticeship.com or blackjackapprenticeship.com slash Tales from the Felt. Yep, that's where you can get it. And there's two, the book's 40 bucks. Or if you want the deluxe with all the bonuses, it's 50 bucks. And again, like if that sounds expensive, this is really... It's to cover the expenses of the book and make a profit for charity. And I mean, it's, I don't think people will be disappointed with, with the product. You know, I would never sell myself, but that hot dog story is worth $10. <laughs>
<laughs> I was actually thinking that earlier too when you mentioned the bonus stories. When I'm thinking about that story, I love that story. And yeah, I was I had the same thought. I was like, yeah, I'd pay an extra ten bucks for this and some other thing. Yeah, just the, so we got the bonus stories from uh, the hot dog story from Loud and Often. We've got a security interaction with Stephen Bridges, magician, the vlogger, and Levi Mitch has has a crazy uh, cash, scary story. And then there's also we have a video. It's 18, I believe, back off stories told by half a dozen pros. Uh, so we did this out of boot camp a couple of years ago, and and we hadn't used it. And so I said, hey, can we use this as one of the bonuses? And so a bunch of people are telling their favorite back off stories. And then we're also giving a like a really high quality print of one of the stories for people to buy the deluxe. So this is something that people could put up on their wall or or whatever whatever they want to do with. And it's going to be basically an art print of one of the stories. So for an extra 10 bucks, you get the stories, the back off stories, the print. And next, we're going to have Joe 748 talking with the illustrator about that part of the book process. All right. So we're here with Scott Samples, the illustrator from Tales of the Felt. He's also dog whisperer, educator, philanthropist. philanthropist. <laughs> he does everything, but we know him mainly from illustrating the entire book, Tales from the Felt. He is also asterisk, asterisk pound on Instagram. You can find him there. The very first thing I saw of Scott's work was actually at a coffee shop. And uh, right when you walk into my favorite coffee shop, there is this poster that's a uh, mermaid with a big kind of like X symbol, like a no symbol stamped on it to uh, combat the rise of Starbucks all around us. And I love that picture. I didn't know it was him who did that photo until way later. But as the art director, I, I look through hundreds of profiles, hundreds of like portfolios. I was the best. He was the best. I mean, kind of, because it just nothing fit the mood of what we were going for from all the portfolios I've seen. So tell us a little bit about your art journey. It was a mystical, magical journey, which led me here. I probably was chosen maybe at like eight or nine years old by the gods to be a legendary artist. And I remember it very distinctly because I had to kneel down and I was sort of christened. There was a whole ceremony. And I'm just living in that truth now, just of being like my true kingship. Yeah, I think uh, one of Scott's greatest qualities is he's very humble. And so that really helped out the whole process of collaborating together. Joe is a very fickle art critic. And the worst part of drawing this is our personality conflict. We fought, I mean, it didn't, it only became physical a couple times, but. I think the scars we carry, both literal and emotional, made us better people. Actually, you were not that difficult to work with. I've worked with much more difficult artists in the past, so I thought it was very easy. But what, yeah. what was your experience like? Because Scott didn't have any background in like gambling or blackjack or card counting or anything like that. So you probably have never played blackjack or even been in a casino, perhaps. No, I went, I went to Vegas like one time. I didn't even gamble. I remember thinking it was interesting that there was like a slot machine in the Vegas airport. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll play it. Oh, I don't get how it works. Never mind. So to rewind just a little bit. So I looked at his Instagram and everything in his art. And I was just like, man, this style is like really kind of what we're going for. So we approached Scott to, you know, I think we just started off with one picture and one story just to see how it went. And it, it turned out really, really well. And that ended up being the cover image. So. For some reason, it's 
your face it's weird how your face ended up on the cover like it's I just said, weird like how did that it just randomly happened like i said it wasn't my call that my, my <laughs> okay. story was on the cover all right even though i was the art director weird. it was still out of my wasn't my call just so okay mm. yeah, yeah interesting yeah. but um he really nailed the first picture and it was actually kind of scary how similar it looked to the real scene that that I was uh, talking about in my story. So I was still thinking about that, where it's just all these images are scarily accurate sometimes, even though he's never seen these people or been in the environment. Yeah, I mean, I'll chalk it up to like just Google's AI. Because I've never been to any of these places, I had to like do a bunch of Google image searches to see what it looks like. I didn't have the gas money to drive to all these different locations, I suppose. It would have been cool. I would have loved to see those places and take pictures there for references, but we just relied on a lot of photo references and in some cases, like actual photos from where it was happening and where these people were. But that part was interesting, I suppose. So once we started working together, so our process was just sort of, we would read the story together, both of us. And then at the end of reading each story, we would kind of try to come up with different images. Sometimes some stories were easier than others. Some were really hard to come up with because you read the story and Loudon talks about this where it's just like you read a story and the first instinct is to just like come up with the literal imagery of what is read and if we did that it would just be everyone sitting at a blackjack table and that's not something we wanted to do so we're trying to find bits and pieces within the story that could be illustrated in a unique way like hit a seven story about it's like a charitable pizza it's like how do you make that look interesting? Because the story is actually like Hit A7 is in line to order pizza. Like that's like literally what's happening. So to draw that would probably be pretty boring. So that one I kind of, I would leave it up to Scott to try to think of some, like that picture in particular, how did that come together? Well, I'm barely literate. So I had to read, I read the stories and just try to close my eyes and think of like what pops in my head at the end of the story. What's a symbol? What's a scene? What's something that we haven't already done in terms of like the setting, the image, the emotion. And what we were left with was pineapple pizza. And, you know, I did a bunch of sketches. Joe and I looked at a few sketches. This was just one of them that made it. And I took the idea and I just try to grind it as hard as I can and get the most out of it. But I think in retrospect, I would have, I'd push myself if I were to do it again harder and grind even harder, putting more detail in, and just where's Waldoing like every single image. But I like this one. It's, it's all right. And I feel like, I don't know, it's kind of a balance to like, we didn't want to go way too abstract with the style, but also didn't want it to be boring. But I think at times probably you would have preferred it to be like a little bit more loose. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of it's really direct. I tend to prefer something like a more like pattern based or like surreal. All of these when I look at them, I mean, except for the uh, Highland piece, mm -hmm. which is kind of, uh, I mean, it's like an advertisement rather than or like a t-shirt design rather than like an illustrated scene. Actually, I think that one was really fun for me. It kind of just boils down to things I like to do versus, you know, what I'm being asked for by the client. How did you, where's your style influence coming from in general? I guess, I mean, I love figure drawing, but like, I guess my aesthetic, my vibe is like metal album covers recently. This is just something I, like an aesthetic I've just been kind of craving or like 
when I see other people wearing like a cool metal shirt, or I kind of am salivating over that. So that's if you look on my Instagram, that's like the dumb stuff I'm, and a lot of it is has kind of a a symmetry to it or something. But you know that that's not not every. This isn't like a uh, album cover brochure or or book. You know, this is about a specific thing. So I kind of have to find a way. I mean, the way I integrated something like my own style and something I liked was just by using a lot of dark blacks contrasts. Yeah, like the color is really like in all all of your work. It's pretty. I don't even know how to describe it. It's it's really punchy in a way that's sort of bold. Like this. You guys can't see it, but there's it, it kind of looks like a little bit like street art as well. Like, I kind of don't know what I'm doing with color. I've tried to like look up palettes online and to follow somebody's like pre-made palette to create a piece using like very limited colors because it's like sort of screen print art, which I've been doing screen printing recently. It's it's just like a few different colors layered on top of each other and spaced out. There's no blending at all. It's sort of a graphic style. So I'm just randomly choosing colors that like look okay to me. And other times, something like a more color-oriented person, a painter or something, if they were to choose my palette for me, it might look completely different, you know? Yeah, so looking through the book, I mean, which one of those, like, few of those drawings do you think you had the most fun working on and which were the least fun? Grace, the piece with the security guard, was my most favorite. It was a bit more electric. Before we turned it down, the colors are like popping out a little bit more. It's maybe a bit more subdued in the print. That was my favorite just because it was like dark and kind of disgusting, like uh, this guy sitting there languishing in his chair. You know, he should be watching the screens, but he isn't. Like, I found a way to make it a little bit like some more spooky and like sci-fi than it maybe was in, in person or in real life. Yeah, Grace Jones's story, there's a surveillance agent in his, you know, small, dark room, and he's supposed to be watching all the screens. In the meantime, you know, Colin and his team are taking over half a million dollars at this place, and this is just sort of the visual of what we imagined was going on in that surveillance room. It's it's a really, like, it kind of looks like, like a submarine ship sort of control center or something. Like, it has, like, a lot of red, dark light to it. And the surveillance agent is just asleep in his chair. What's another one that you liked doing? Tilton's was really fun as well. Again, I I haven't spent much time in these places, so I hope that I'm I hope I'm doing it justice to the community. I don't, this is a community I would really actually don't have much contact with, so I understand the audience is something I actually don't have a whole lot of connection with, just in terms of this passion, this hobby. But I mean, I, I mean, if it's if people connect to it, that makes me really happy. If I'm able to take something that I don't know much about and create some art, you know, it's like writing a song or something. If a lot of people connect to something that I made, then that's a win. That's a success. But the Tilton one was really fun. It had the same vibe, like a dark vibe, like. A kind of dark red colors like a dingy room a smoky place where something you know dark is happening yeah tilton's story took place at the old at revel casino in atlantic city i've been there many times yeah it looks it's a really good accurate representation of the vibe of how that place once was what about the ones that were more difficult to make which one was a little bit harder to come up with a concept or just hard to draw in general i pushed myself on a lot of these because you know, mentally, sometimes you limit yourself and think like, I mean, because I'm, I'm basically just a kid who liked to draw like little dinosaurs in his notebook or something that grew up and tried drawing other crap. And I don't know, 
I never know if what I'm able to draw until I like try to draw it. So I'm pushed in just in that some of the subject matter is something I'm not necessarily. I mean, drawing people is familiar to me, but creating a scenery like out of nothing or trying to build it out of other reference photos is actually super hard. Loudon's on being on like a like a gambling casino boat like that was interesting kind of building that forced perspective that sort of fisheye look to it which was something that I wanted creating something like that without I mean maybe like a reference photo but having to kind of build it in my head the comic book artists are really good at this kind of thing like making a scene out of nowhere but it takes a lot of work and you have to like you have to build a world out of like a bunch of lines, like draft a reality that with a perspective that makes sense to the person looking at it, or it's not, it doesn't look awkward or something or anything like that. Like that's not very easy. I keep looking at uh, Rymos and that was something I used like a reference photo for from like Google Earth. And it turned out all right. But when I look at the car, the car doesn't uh, kind of looks like it doesn't belong in that space. So, it's, you know, I have my own criticisms of it just being the artist and that maybe someone looking at it that bought the book wouldn't see. You know, you're, that's why I don't have any tattoos that I drew on my body because I would be like extra critical. How do you know when, you know, enough's enough, the piece is done, it's there's nothing more you can really add to it? Or, you know, when's the point where it's just like, okay, I'm just adding more work here without extra value where you're just tinkering and tinkering like i'm not obsessive like that i'm more i like a sumi painter something like that where i'll I'll just i'll try to whip something out expressively and then just leave it there and not think about it anymore having to actually work on a piece and finish it and make it feel finished is also something that is not really my thing so I'll, I'll finish it, and then maybe somebody will ask me to add something, then I'll push it further, and I'll be happy that I pushed it further, and I'll realize that it actually wasn't finished when I thought it was finished. I'll go back after a couple of weeks and add something else or change something else. It's like an oil painting. It takes forever to dry, and you're pushing it and continuing to work on it over like months and months. And that, that kind of makes more sense that you create a masterpiece that way, slowly, like thinking about it over and over. Sometimes I just want, like, I want it to be done. So I'm like, okay, done. Next one, next, next. And I'm not actually putting like as much effort into it as I could. So it's hard to say, you know, I need, I kind of need other people's opinions. Okay, so in us working together, Scott would sort of come up with the main concept or or a few different concepts. We would kind of choose one and then sort of flesh it out. And then as the process went on, I would look at it sort of maybe 75% finished and maybe give some feedback. And then how did you take that feedback? Was it helpful? Was it annoying? Was it it usually was annoying, but also helpful. It's annoying because of how I just described my workflow or my just the way I feel about like a piece. If it's if it's overworked, if it's it becomes tedious to me, it's not fun anymore, and it starts like ruining a passion that I have. So I'm I'll get like a bit stubborn about something like oh I don't want to fix it because that requires too much work. Some people who don't see how it was created don't see how what it means to fix a certain part of it because they don't see how it's built for the layers. So suggesting something that is like a fundamental change to the entire drawing, like oh make this bigger, move this over here. When I it's not like one element of it can be detached so easily because I'm building it by color. So if something like a big change like that was re- was required, then I I would probably be a bit. Well, I just feel like a lazy sort of teenager, like flopping around on the ground, like, oh, I don't want to do it. Like, there's always a way to fix it, but I'm happy that um, 
Initially, the artist that I showed you, Seung Yoon Kim from Korea, this uh, really cool artist who has like a kind of graphical style. You could, I, I, some of his uh, pieces have sort of gone viral online. I, just, I was I saw his work on Twitter before I knew what his name was, and you know he's painting these kind of Korean like buff mob bosses. If you look up his work, it's pretty awesome. But his work was what I had in mind for the whole series, and I thought. Like, oh, I love his style. I want to try to borrow from some of the lines and, like, the contrast with the black. And a friend of mine saw that I had, we had posted the book up and that it was for sale. And he said, oh, you know, what, what is this? What do you keep promoting this book? And I was like, oh, I worked on that. And he's like, oh, it reminds me of the work of Seung Yoon Kim. And none of my other work necessarily is borrowing from him or is inspired by him at all. So I felt like something came across in the work that was something I was going for came across, you know, for, I think for the better. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. After being away from it for a while and looking at it right now together, I'm picking up on these details in some of the drawings that I noticed that I really like, like just random shades and, and lighting little stuff hit. If you, you guys, when, when you get the book, you'll see there's just some, a lot of hidden details in there that show a lot of character. And I think that's something that you really nailed with the illustrations there. There were some Easter eggs in uh, Clark's piece. There's an Easter egg hidden, if you can find it. RX Gambles, pretty obvious Easter eggs there. Yeah, so I saw Joanna at the Blackjack Ball this year, and I showed her your illustration about the three Tonys. And then she, she kind of had the same response I did, where she was sort of taken aback by how similar the, really? the, the, the vibe was. I that haven't happened, heard that story. It happened actually. in real life, so it was really cool to... I mean, I've heard that from several of the authors wow. where they, they've seen it and they're like, wow, that's actually really close to what it felt like or looked oh, like. Oh, man. Well, I hope I get a chance to meet some of them at some point because hearing that feedback from them would be awesome. That'd be incredible to hear somebody. I mean, because I was only able to read the stories that they wrote, which would be cool, but maybe there was a lot of other emotion that uh, you know I didn't capture. What's on your future right now, art-wise? Are you working on anything? I've been thinking about the sort of style of the work that I do and how it's conducive to screen printing. So like I said, I've been doing a bunch of screen printing recently and it's been fun. I, I um, just been like making shirts and sweatshirts and stuff and trying to think of art that would look better on a screen print that would screen print out better, how that the sort of craft of screen printing and all the equipment that I need to have and thinking about how I can, you know, if there's if there's like a viable like art piece that I can sell using this craft that people would actually want to buy. But it's been fun learning the tools and the techniques. Yeah, taking it back real quick to the how you did the illustrations for Tales from the Felt, what, what medium were you using? I used a Procreate on the iPad. A friend of mine in Taiwan was using it, and I started seeing it pop up more online, like tutorials and things like that. And it became, I mean, it's like $10 for the iPad. It's basically like an industry standard. I mean, I don't, maybe not at this point anymore. I'm not really in the industry, but the new iPad that I got was really powerful as well. And I was able to, you know, stack up 40 or 50 layers. And that's like pretty modest for a lot of people, actually. So you're using the iPad Pro, Procreate, and like a, what kind of drawing tool do you have? Yeah, and the Apple Pen. 
You like the Apple Pen versus the other ones that are available, or is it just? Mm, I've used uh, Wacom's, you know, like an Intuos. I've never used like the Cintiq or whatever. I've tried it out. I've used other like crappy off brands like Huion, and I prefer drawing on a screen and seeing the line created by the pen that I'm drawing rather than having to translate that motion to a, a screen in a different place. Like drawing on a pad and having it translate onto a screen that's in front of you, vertical. You have to kind of just learn how to do both, like how not to rest your hand on a screen of an iPad to make a mark on it, or how to use one of these like Wacom like bamboo pads or whatever. It's a skill to learn both of them, and you can learn both of them and you know probably do either one like very well professionally. But this is just something I prefer after trying it. Well, cool. Thanks, Scott, for sitting yeah. down with us. This is Scott Samples Asterix Pound on Instagram. You can find them there.